welcome to week 57 of 60 Weeks, 60 Books. I really dithered over this week's book. I read it in July 2020, just before a time of immense upheaval and change in our lives, and it felt like a hammer blow then. I wasn't sure about including it, began thinking of all the books that I have left out, maybe really, because I was a bit afraid of writing about it. Rereading it over the past couple of weeks, just as I heard the news that it was time for another huge removal, it has once again carried significance, weight and meaning with it. So it became inevitable. It is a book that has left its mark unquestionably on this most recent phase of my life. We were emerging from the pandemic when I picked it up, thanks to a recommendation from the book group I had joined. Although I knew of Rebecca Solnit and had read her essay, Men Explain Things to Me, I had not read any of her books. I suspect every professional woman who reads the essay will do so with wry recognition of the moment when a very important and wealthy man asked Solnit about her late, most recent work, And when she mentioned the subject, he talked over her for long minutes, describing a book that he had not read, but which he knew was very important on the same subject, until the penny began to drop, until he eventually realised that it was Solnit herself who had written the very book that he was telling her to read. I was not prepared for the impact of the faraway nearby, either the first time or any of the subsequent times I have read it. I've just finished my third read in preparation for this podcast, and yet again it has woven its charm. I regularly interview potential staff with my boss, who has a question that always reveals a good deal and a question I'd recommend highly to interviewers. It is, what book would you want every 18-year-old to have read by the time they leave school? I would love to say Solnit's The Far Away Nearby. I have taught quite a few students into whose hands I'd willingly press this book. Young women, young men, who were wiser by far than I was at the age of 18, and I hope that they would find it, as I have, helpful in handling the unexpected, in navigating our complex and changing world. That said, the more I read it, the more it seems a book, as Edgar in King Lear puts it, for those of us who have borne most, seen so much, and lived so long. The first thing to say about it is that the structure is a thing of beauty. There are 13 chapters in total. The first six are apricots, mirror, ice, flight, breath, wound, or wound, culminating in not, chapter 7, and then reversing out again from unwound back to apricots. There is in the Kindle version an extra section, Moths, which in the print edition that I first read unspools at the bottom of each page. It is a book that invites the reader to read and reread, to pause, reverse, to read the chapters in their pairs, to flick between sections, revisit the ideas and images it conjures. In a bookshop, the book is lodged in non-fiction, but it is hard to categorise or classify, encompassing memoir, meditation, engagement with and criticism of art, music, literature, science, climate change, the nature of emotion, beauty, sorrow. It is a book that embodies synthesis and symbiosis, 
bringing together a sharp and rational eye, a breadth of knowledge and experience, and an ability to interpret and bring together widely disparate ideas. But what is it actually about? First and foremost, it is a collection of stories, dependent on the stories that many of us know. Myths, fairy tales, and tales so embedded in our culture that they almost seem mythical. Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the tale of Cupid and Psyche, the Norwegian fairy tale East of the Sun and West of the Moon about a young woman who marries a polar bear, nearly loses him and must seek him out with the help of three crones in both the south and the north wind. The book also brings together three key events in Solnit's life. The emptying of her mother's house when she and her brothers must move their mother to sheltered care as her dementia deepens. Solnit's own management of the discovery that she was harbouring precancerous cells in her breast, along with the treatment that she undertakes. And finally, her decision to take up an invitation to a six-month residency in an apartment underneath the Library of Water. Forgive my Icelandic pronunciation, Vatnasafen, in a remote Icelandic town which looks as though it's called Stikisholmur. Solnit is concerned with a central, fundamental theme, one that I think must interest any one of us engaged in the knotty business of being a human on this vulnerable earth. That theme is metamorphosis, at least that is the fancy term for it. More simply put, the theme is change. She is fascinated by all the tales of desire and deception and magic, of transformation and testing, stories of the quest to break the enchantment, restore the prince or princess to their true selves, where we achieve an understanding and realisation of who and what we are. The book begins and ends with the image of apricots. When she was packing up her mother's house, she tells of how her younger brother decided to harvest the apricots from the tree outside the house. He collected around 100 pounds of fruit, three great boxes that Solnit set about preserving, turning them into jars of golden syrupy fruit, jam and liqueur. She did not want to see the fruit rot and go to waste, and this is the first moment of metamorphosis, the last gift from her mother's home, one of very few gifts that Solnit received from either of her exceptionally tricky parents. Solnit hints at just how very difficult a childhood she had, not with any sense of self-pity. This is no misery memoir. She sees just as any of us do who regularly read fairy tales and children's stories, how often in fiction children must be orphaned, abandoned, disowned, sold off in bargains intended to preserve the wider family by sacrificing one dispensable individual. She has said in interviews that she grew up in a violent home, was a battered little kid, struggled at school, left home at 17, and went to study in Paris before returning to California and moving into her first apartment at 19. There is in her a strength, a core of determination and a powerful sense of agency that I recognise and admire. My childhood was nothing like as tough 
It turns out that being sent away to boarding school before the age of 10 was probably, in some ways, my salvation. However, Solnit identified something that resonated with me. She says, We are all the heroes of our own stories, and one of the arts of perspective is to see yourself small on the stage of another's story, to see the vast expanse of the world that is not about you. It is a gift, this grasp of how our place in the world shifts depending on how we see and are seen by others and at times not seen at all. Sometimes it is best to travel through the world, through our days, invisible and under the radar. Travel has been an inextricable part of my life, and I think this is another feature of Solnit's experience that illuminated my own. I don't know how my father first travelled to England from Pakistan in 1960 or 1961. I do know that when I was a baby, five months or so, five or so months old, my parents and I flew back to Pakistan, living there until June 1966. In January this year, my mother gave me a selection of photos we found going through boxes she had stored in the curve of her apartment block, a few photos of us back in Pakistan just before we left, two batches from 1966 and 1967 that she sent to her parents. The pictures are mainly of me as a two or three-year-old, a jolly little child, excited by my stuffed whale, by the flimsy balsa plane my father had made for me, by my tricycle, my building blocks. That is when my memory kicks in, and I remember flights to London, trips to Spain to see my grandparents, and after my parents divorced, the regular solo flights between Washington and London to stay with my father and stepmother during the holidays. Solnit writes, we can imagine other stories, other selves. And it reminded me of how I used new places to give myself new names. The first time we were sailing across the Atlantic on a French boat. The setup was strict. Children were confined to a nursery area, which I remember is bare and chilly, with only an incongruous playground roundabout and a TV playing French cartoons to amuse us. My mother came to find me one day, asked for me by name, only to be told that there was no child in the nursery called Aisha. She caught sight of me, pointed at me, saying, but that's Aisha. And the supervisor, astounded, said, her name is Louisa Jane. Now, more than 50 years on, I still remember trying out the name, trying out the freedom of being someone completely different. As I mentioned earlier, when I first read the book in the summer of 2020, it was just as a process began that ended with me accepting a job that took us from Surrey to Sao Paulo. I can't help thinking that a line from Solnit contributed to the decision to take the job. As a young woman, she developed a motto which was never turn down an adventure without a really good reason. At the time of the job offer, I could not think of a really good reason to say no. And this goes back to Solnit's fundamental theme. By being open to adventure, we become open to change. We accept that nothing ever can stay the same, just as Elizabeth Bishop recounted. 
The art of losing isn't hard to master and we may miss things and people and places, but actually it isn't a disaster. It may look like it. It may ache like it. My husband, currently travelling, sent me a photograph of our old house in Brussels yesterday, bringing back a flood of longing for a time that cannot be resurrected. Solnit is intrigued by the far north, as I have been, particularly by its frozen quality, the deceleration of time and the instability of the ice and earth as they melt and refreeze every year. She writes movingly of Frankenstein, a book like The Far Away Nearby that I want to press into every 18-year-old's hands. The chapter Ice about Shelley and Frankenstein was the one that convinced me that this was the book that I had to discuss this week. Solnit explores not just the book itself, which is a layered masterpiece, but also the life of its author, a young woman who was still, in many ways, a precocious child when she began writing the novel aged 18, although she had been with Percy Shelley by then for two years and born at least two children, both stillborn. It's a book I've taught several times, and like the other great books I have taught, it is a book that becomes richer on reacquaintance. Like Solnit, I see it as a deeply autobiographical novel, only lightly concealing the fury that fueled its composition, fury at her fickle, demanding, unfaithful husband, the poet Percy Shelley, fury at herself for falling for his charms. The book is named for Victor Frankenstein, the wildly obsessive and irresponsible creator of a creature composed of various body parts and galvanised into life. Solnit identifies the heart of the book, Frankenstein's moral weakness, his irresponsibility is what sets everything in motion, that and the deeply human emotions of the creature who wants fellowship, love and understanding and receives rejection. The novel opens in an Arctic waste where a young British explorer, Walton, encounters Victor Frankenstein, a sick man unable to travel any further. Frankenstein tells Walton his story and in doing so reveals the creature's story told in turn to Victor when they encounter each other near Chamonix on Mont Blanc. The creature has by this time acquired an education, has read, amongst other books, Paradise Lost by Milton. Mary Shelley must have been struck, as I remember being struck, by Milton's extraordinary depiction of Satan, casting around for an escape from his very essence. Which way shall I fly, infinite wrath and infinite despair? Which way I fly is hell. Myself am hell. Both Victor and his creation, his creature, embody what Solnit sees as the self he will not face, not own, not know. She continues, not to know yourself is dangerous to that self and to others. Satan and the creature share that self-knowledge, that moment of clarity. Ultimately, we cannot escape ourselves. Solnit sees real and present danger in those who do not, cannot engage with this fundamental truth, who seek to deny or conceal themselves. 
Elaborate are the means to hide from yourself. The disassociations, projections, deceptions, forgettings, justifications and other tools to detour around the obstruction of unbearable reality. The labyrinths in which we hide the minotaurs who have our faces. Solnit reminds us in the faraway nearby that we are all travellers, that as we travel we all carry ourselves with us wherever we go, and that the greatest danger that we ever face is to deny or avoid knowing that self. We may shed our bare skin, transform from bird or beast back into our human bodies, adopt new names and new identities, but ultimately we must accept our true selves. Join me next week for a look at Shaname, the Book of Kings, an epic from 10th century Persia.